Okay, okay. welcome back to our Q&A time. So our first question, if Jesus had chosen to call 12 legions of angels to save himself from death at the cross, would he have sinned in that choice or action? My understanding is no, he would not, because he was not required to go through the cross. He had uh, voluntarily chosen to go through the cross, and he voluntarily could have chosen not to go through the cross. The question really was a temptation of using power. If you notice that the, what Jesus said, I could call my father, and he would send 12 legions of angels. Uh, Jesus would not be using his power to stop people from taking his life. He would have called on the Father, and the Father would have intervened to save him. Uh, and, and that would have put an end to the process, but he didn't. So the real temptation for Jesus was to use power in selfish ways. And so he did have the freedom to, without sin, to call his Father and leave the situation with his Father's intervening in his behalf, not him uh, exercising power as uh, through through his human nature. How can we help those who are possessed by an evil spirit today? In the very same way they did in the Bible. You actually pray and ask God to remove or hold back or restrain the evil spirit. And uh, But you must remember, even if you pray that, there are two wills involved here, and that's the will of the person you're praying for. And what happens when you want the evil spirit to be removed and the person wants the evil spirit to stay? So there, there will be a limitation on what God will do when someone is bent on leaving them. Typically, the experiences of people having themselves freed from demonic influences in Scripture are people who wanted to be free from demonic influences in Scripture. Uh, uh, it's very difficult to free somebody who insists on being enslaved uh, to the uh, to the demonic forces. But but you do it the same way they did then. You, you actually call out to God and ask God to send his agencies to restrain or hold back the evil forces. So uh, a medical question about germ theory versus terrain cell theory. Uh, and it goes on to talk about how germ theory is that they're outside vi um, pathogens that attack or infect the body and that the uh, terrain cell theory is that uh, disease is caused by some imbalance happening in the body to keep your body in a healthy state then then you don't have to worry about these external pathogens and so forth in general that's kind of kind of the uh, the different theories I think it's a mistake to argue one against the other I think they're both true you can have diseases from external pathogens or toxins whether it's radiation poisoning or whether it is uh, um, diphtheria or or uh, salmonella poisoning, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, a bad E. coli that you get in the food or tetanus. You can have, uh, and rabies, you can have outside pathogens that get into your body that cause disease, no question about it. However, we also know that there are many diseases caused by a body. There are many good microbes that live on our body and protect our bodies from the bad microbes and if you get the an imbalance of the good microbes it makes you vulnerable to the bad microbes causing various problems i think a classic example is the healthy staph aureus that lives on our skin and if you get an imbalance uh, you can get a bad staph aureus that can cause infection and you the healthy uh the healthy microbiome that uh that um lives on us and in us does give us protection. And so I don't think it's an either or. I think both are true. Does the Bible give us guidance on how we should dress for church attendance? 
No. The Bible gives guidance on how we should dress in general. Uh, we should dress with modesty in non-lewd um, and provocative ways. That's how we should dress. And we should dress in our culture so that men look like men and women look like women, whatever our culture is. That's what the Bible teaches, that we should not dress in ways that confuse people about whether you're a man or a woman. Uh, and, and we don't have any problem in our society with that today, I know. Uh, but, it, but it's true. And that doesn't mean that men shouldn't wear skirts. In certain cultures, men wear kilts. And the men that wear kilts, which could be defined as a skirt, uh, they clearly still look like men. They don't look like women when they do that. Uh, so the culture, it's not about prescribing a piece or article of clothing. The biblical principle is about dressing in ways that in your culture, there's a distinction in the way you dress when you go out in society. You're not uh, misrepresenting the reality of your, of your being and trying to uh, confuse things. Uh, uh, Satan is the author of confusion, and we have in our society today lots of people who are actively seeking to confuse minds. And I will tell you, I'll just take an aside on this question and tell you that my personal view of the whole transgender movement has nothing to do with gender at all. It has to do with, with your mind. You see, the idea behind the transgender movement is there's no objective male or female. There's no objective man or woman. It's all subjective feeling that you have inside yourself. So chromosomes don't matter. Genitalia doesn't matter. None of that matters. What matters is, is the way you feel. And if there's no objective that you can look to to determine what's man and woman or male or female, then what you have done is you have decoupled people's ability to actually discern the, re the real world around them. If there is no male or female, which is what you see everywhere so easily, it's one of the most basic things that you can tell in this world. If there isn't that, then there is no real standards to measure anything by, the meaning there's no right or wrong. There's no sin. And if there's no right or wrong, then you can't look to somebody in power and say you were wrong to do this because what ultimately makes something right or wrong is what the person in power says. And this is ultimately about authoritarianism, decoupling people's ability to hold other people accountable by objective standards that God built into reality. It's a really assault on our minds and our ability to have discernment and to hold other people accountable, not accountable to us, but accountable to their own conduct. Says I have a friend who is being taken in by charismatic style of worship. They send me videos of people that talk about meeting Jesus and seeing angels and experiencing feelings of peace, describing the experience of being wrapped in a blanket of God's love. These testimonies seem to center on emotional experience. They describe it as the spirit realm. They promote the idea that uh, every life decision can be predicated by an emotional response of the spirit inside you. They term these emotional uh, experiences as revelations from God. I'm not sure how to respond to them. How would you uh, respond to such a friend? Well, first off, you have to determine whether they're actually open and willing to have a discussion or not. If they are, then you can have a conversation that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of, of truth and love. You could point to the road to Emmaus and show that on the road to Emmaus, as God uh, revealed the truth to them, then their hearts burned within them. The burning bosom experience, emotional experience, as God designed it, follows the, uh, the uh, embracing and revelation of truth. You can have this conversation with them. You can also teach them, though, that the Satan is a counterfeiter, and he is a counterfeiter that has no truth. And therefore, he does not want people to actually take time and do like happened on the road to Emmaus, look for evidence 
in truth. Instead, he wants to dethrone truth uh, with something else that, that he can replace it with. And this is what spiritualism is. So my definition of spiritualism, if you want to find it in all of its forms, whether it's uh, palm reading or tarot cards or seances or these types of experience that were just described in this, in this question, you simply have to use this definition. And here's what spiritualism is. It's the pursuit of knowledge without the investigation of evidence or the use of your reason. That's what it is. When people go to the, the palm reader, they want to know something. They want to know their fortune. They want to know the future. They want to know, should they marry this person? Should they invest their money in this place? They want, they want knowledge, but they don't want to investigate evidence and use their reason. God is the source, and that's what you pursue when you, when you have no truth. You want, to, you want to instill this pursuit in people. But if you have truth on your side, you don't want them to do anything other than to pursue the truth because the truth sets you free. And if you look at this experience, this experience is clearly uh, demonic. It is not biblical and it's not scripture because it's turning the hearts and minds away from biblical truth to an experience of feeling that they're going to have. And James tells us that we are, that no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted and we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. And so one of the, the strongest ways the devil tracks people is to give them a very positive, warm, emotional experience that's devoid of evidence, truth, reason, and thinking. And uh, the Bible is exactly the opposite. Every person to be persuaded in their own mind, come let us reason together that your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow, and so forth and so on. So I would have to have that conversation and demonstrate that the process is a process devoid of the pursuit of truth. It asks, what are, what's happening in the East with the war? Could this be, be a pushback from the king of the North against the king of the South, Gog and Magog? Um, could, it, could this be what uh, we see unfolding before our eyes? And it goes up, and they go on to thank us for our class and, and the blessings they've had. Uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't, I think that's a possibility. I've heard and I've read articles written about how um, the, um, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church is having a strong influence in the Russian uh, army and the Russian uh, desire to take over, and it's pushed back against uh, liberalism uh, from the leadership uh, in the, uh, that the West was influencing with, um, with the transgendered and gay rights that were moving into Ukraine and so forth. I've, I've heard articles written about this. I don't personally know enough to be able to say one way or the other on this. I, I would have to actually do more investigation. Next next uh, question is that the analogy of a computer software hardware is a very good example, uh, but if I'm talking to somebody who doesn't have any real understanding of computers, do you have another analogy? And I haven't been able to think of another analogy that really breaks it down as clearly as the computer analogy with the, with the uh, three elements of the body, soul, and spirit, hardware, software, and energy source. So no, I really don't have a better analogy or another one. My friend doesn't like to read the Psalms because he thinks the killing of Uriah the Hittite, um, uh, because he thinks of the killing of Uriah the Hittite, what David did, and he thinks that David did not receive enough punishment after killing Uriah the Hittite. He thinks of this loss of the son, and he doesn't think uh, that losing Absalom was a just, or the, uh, the excuse me, losing the, uh, the, the, the newborn son was a just punishment. How do I explain this through design all lens? He's obviously looking through imposed law. So I would, uh, the way I would approach him is I would ask him, Let, let's go back um, and just set aside the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah for a moment and ask, what is your understanding of David uh, prior to that? Is David uh, a, a person who has, does not have a sin problem or does he have a sin problem? 
do Psalms 51 apply to David? Uh, he was born in sin, conceived in iniquity, or is David not born in sin and conceived in iniquity? So is the problem with Uriah his sin problem, or did he already have a sin problem before Uriah? And, and what's the solution for his sin problem that he has before Uriah? What's the solution for that? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And so the, how, how is the solution different before or after this particular and specific sin? Well, it's not. It's the same solution. And so I would actually set aside this and simply say, so do you think it's unfair that people who've done murder can be saved by Christ through grace and only people who haven't committed murder should be able to be saved? Is that what you're saying? People with good behavior? So you really are a behaviorist, that, uh, you know, that, that God's grace isn't sufficient for all of us. And then, and then I would take him to other stories in Scripture where people who did even worse things like Manasseh and so forth. And so I think he's got a flawed sense of the whole plan of salvation and what it actually means. And that, in fact, the, the sins or the acts of sins or the symptoms of sick heart condition. And take him to Matthew 5 where Jesus said, you say if you commit adultery, bad behavior. I say if you lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad behavior. I say if you hate in your heart. And Jesus is pointing out that these behaviors are the symptoms of a heart that have not been healed from the sin condition yet. And David's actions here were evidences that despite his previous victories with Goliath and others, that the sin condition actually had not been cured in his heart. In fact, I would go on to say that one can make the argument that David wasn't even fully converted until after this. Uh, similar to Peter, who did miracles for three and a half years with Jesus, but the end of Jesus' life, um, Jesus says to Peter, when you're converted, feed my sheep. And, and it was after his denial of Jesus that he went out and wept bitterly and truly was fully converted after that point. And I think David's full conversion came after this uh, sin with Uriah. I think he was a believer but had elements of self-centeredness that were manifested in this circumstance when he found that he didn't need the Lord in day-to-day -day operations like he did when he was running constantly from Saul's soldiers that were trying to kill him. When you're running and on the run, every day you're reminded to trust the Lord. When you're king and you're powerful and you're wealthy and you're in your palace and you have armies doing your bidding, you're tempted, if you have it still in your heart, to feel like you can handle it on your own now. And I think that's where David was, and I think this sin was a revelation of the roots of selfishness still in his heart that I think were ultimately rooted out after this sin, and that's when you see Psalms 51 being written. So I want to have this long conversation with the with the fellow and see if you could get him to see it was really a heart issue, not a behavior issue. It says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 2. Can you help me understand the law of sin and death? What does it mean? Who created, uh, who created or designed the law of sin and death? And who sustains or executes the power of its function? And is it simply a result of the deviation from the design law? Yes, your last question actually answered the, the question for us. But I will show you. It says the, the sting, but the power of death, uh, power of uh, sin is the law. Why? If someone were to tie weights around their legs and jump in the ocean, they break the law of respiration. And where does the power come that caused them to die from that? The law of respiration. That's the law upon which life is built. And if you break it, 
the power that destroys you is your breaking or being out of harmony with that law. That law is not changed to meet you in your state of non-breathing. And so that's what, uh, you know, some authors have written. Uh, the Lord could not change his law to meet the sinner in his sin. That's right. Because the law is the law upon which life is built. And thus the sinner has to be changed to live back in harmony with the law if we're going to have life. And that's where the plan of salvation is, healing us, putting back in harmony with us. So the law of sin and death is the law of fear and selfishness, the me first principle, which is exactly the opposite of the law of love. And it comes from believing lies and breaking trust, thus we become fear, fearful and self-centered. And Lucifer is the author of the, of the lies and the breach of trust, which results in fear and selfishness. And there is no life there. And that's why he is the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning. And the power that results in that is the fact that there is no life outside of the harm, harmony of the law that God built life to operate upon. When uh, tempted to sin, let's see, uh, this is a quote it looks like out of Heavenly Places, page 256. When tempted to sin, let us remember that Jesus is pleading for us in the heavenly sanctuary. When we put away our sins and come to him in faith, he takes our names on his lips and presents them to his father, saying, I have graven them upon my palms of my hand. I know them by name. Please explain this through design law lens. So um, is that very plain to you all? Do you understand what that means? Yeah. Do you understand what it means? No. No. It's, it's very straightforward. Uh, many people read this, and the conditioning of the imposed law lens makes them sound, makes them immediately think that it sounds like he's somehow pleading to the Father. It actually doesn't say that. It never says anywhere he's pleading to the Father. Um, I would also encourage you, after this explanation, the person who wrote this question, go to our website, type in the word plea. You'll find a couple blogs where I, where I have uh, uh, explored various other quotes about Jesus pleading before the Father and what that actually means. <clears throat> but if you want to read this again carefully, then I want you to hear it. When tempted to sin, let us remember that Jesus is pleading for us in the heavenly sanctuary, not pleading to God in the heavenly sanctuary, pleading for us. Who do you think needs to be convinced when you're being tempted? Us. God needs to be convinced or we need to be convinced? We. So he's pleading for us in the heavenly sanctuary. You see this in Zechariah when the uh, when the angel when the the devil begins accusing and uh, and the angel of the Lord uh, rebukes the the devil and so forth. When we put away our sins and this continue with the quote when, when so he's pleading for us when we respond and put away our sins and come to him in faith because he's pled to us. I've died for you. I love you. I want to free you. I want to give you peace. I want to take away your shame. I want to get rid of your guilt. I want to restore you to wholeness. And we respond to his pleading and put away our sins. So we close the porn. We stop the stealing. We stop the cheating. We come to him in faith and say, Lord, I trust you. I give you my life. He takes our names on his lips. Okay, name is metaphor for our character. Okay, our individuality. And presents them to the Father saying... I have graven them upon my the palms of my hands. I know them by name. That's the end of the quote. Does it sound like he's pleading to the Father or he's presenting something to the Father for their joint celebration? Present. I present them to the Father after he's... Okay, well, here's a Bible verse that might help. 
This is uh, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice now what this says. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, and notice, and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish but holy and blameless. Jesus died to present the church to himself, pure, blameless, holy, radiant. Now back to our quote. When we put away our sin and come to him in faith, he takes our names on his lips and presents them to his father, saying, I have graven them on the palms of my hands. I know them by name. Do you see what's happening here now? Yes, no? Yes. Yes. Yes, Jesus is presenting his church that he's cleansed because he's pled to us. We've responded. We've surrendered our sins. We've given it up. He's made us holy, and therefore he presents us to himself, to his Father, as cleansed and holy. There's nothing um, uh, going on here that is legal, penal, or, or pleading off of the wrath of the Father. Nothing like that going on. It's beautiful, though, really, isn't it? Uh, question, it says, I found your awesome blog on uh, about uh, Mark chapter 14, 51 and 52, which is about the young man who runs away uh, naked. Um, you know, if you know this little story, and I will let you all read that blog. It's in, just in the, in the, and it, and it says, how would you update, would you update this in this, in the light of the possibility the boy and the account might be less? No, I would not update it. Despite being equal, um, do the members of the Godhead have functional hierarchy uh, or any at all? How do they work? So I would encourage you to go to our website, type in the word Trinity. Uh, there will be two or three blogs that come up where I've described the Trinity. And in those blogs, I have a discussion on how the Godhead all have equal abilities, but they voluntarily took different roles in the way they function amongst each other. And, I, and the Bible describes those different roles. And so I just encourage you to read those blogs. What is an appropriate response to someone who claims that NASA and the moon landing are a hoax and that the earth is really flat and present Bible text to prove it? Well, they can't present Bible text to prove the earth is flat since the earth is not flat. Okay? They can present Bible text to prove that they believe that the earth is flat, uh, but that would be no different than presenting Bible text to prove that the earth is the center of the universe that the, uh, that the ancients tried with Galileo. So how do you respond to people like this? Is walking away and shaking the dust off your feet. <laughs> really. If they are that out of tune with objective reality that is so easily measurable and observed that they can't actually co- uh, properly discern the word of God and, co- and harmonize the word of God with objective measurable science in our world, then you can't really have a conversation with them. And you waste your energy if you do. I just walk away and let them, be- and you say, this would be Romans chapter 14, all over it. Romans 14, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Let them think whatever they want. Arguing with them will have will bring only heat and no light. <laughs> 
this has any idea why AA and NA always say they are an alcoholic and an addict at, even after many years of being clean? How does Jesus renewing us have any defeatist attitude? I think it's the same principle as saying this side of glory that we are sinners saved by grace. We are sinners saved by grace. Uh, when you say you're a sinner saved by grace, that doesn't mean you gr you're going out and still living in the same sinful pigsty you were in before you were saved by grace. It acknowledges that without that grace, you're a sinner and you have nothing to commend yourself by your own works or merits. And I think the, the addict is simply saying, hey, I'm an addict, and if it wasn't for grace, I'd be living a life like an addict. Um, that's all I think it really means. I was raised with the Christian scripture being regarded as the true scripture, but now that I am trying to build a better and more genuine relation with God, how do I know that I am not just following the scripture because it's the only thing I know? Because I'm sure if I was raised Muslim, uh, I'd hold the Quran as true. How can someone be sure that the scripture is uh, the one they're following is right? You know, that's a very fair question. The only way you can be sure is for you to read it and for you to evaluate it in light of testable evidences and truths and principles, and you have to come to your own conclusion. To believe the scripture is true because I tell you it's true or somebody else tells you it's true, you're exactly right. A Mormon will tell you the, the Book of Mormon is true, and a, and a Muslim will tell you the Quran is true. You have to prayerfully investigate the scriptures, study them for your own, compare them with the other threads of evidence God has given. I encourage you to compare them with the testable laws that God has built into nature and then come ultimately to your own conclusion. But no one can tell you that for yourself. So I think it's fair that you're asking the question. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love and the truths that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to study, and we thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us and the freedom you've given us to think and to ask questions. We ask that you will, uh, your will be done in our lives and that you will watch over us this week, that we will be faithful and a faithful witness to you in the communities in which we live, and that you will bring us back again next week, that we can share, share the, your truths and community of your, your kingdom together of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen.